You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from Heritage Baptist Church in Corpus Christi, Texas, led by Pastor Johnny Chen. Our church is dedicated to serving Jesus Christ and reaching the world by going forward with the gospel. We pray that you will be helped and blessed by this message from God's Word. Exodus chapter 19 is going to begin part number three. Part number three in Exodus covers chapter 19 through 40 with God sanctifying his people. So let's go ahead and pray, and we are going to begin here. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your people. Thank you for the excitement, the spirit uh, that has been shown even through this difficult time. Thank you for the uh, support and faithfulness that they have and their love for you. Uh, It is such an honor to be here and to be able to preach to your people. And I ask that you would use me tonight to be able to, uh, to bring out the central idea, the, the purpose of this beautiful book that you have given us in the Old Testament, and that you would help me to apply it to our lives so that this wouldn't just be a teaching time, but it would be a preaching time. And that people would never be able to read Exodus again without understanding just a little bit more of what is going on. We want to know your word. We want to hide it in our heart. We want to be able to meditate on it throughout the day. We want to be able to understand it so that we could teach it to others. Father, we need your help in order to do that. There's nobody who understands your word more than you because you are the one who wrote it. You are the author of it all, and we are relying on your help and your spirit tonight. We ask this all in your name. Amen. Okay. Oh, I I have to tell you, already uh, the response that we have been getting on Facebook and even people calling into the church already uh, asking if we can reserve them a spot on the lawn for our Easter service. Keep inviting people. Tell as many people as you can. If they say that they are interested in coming, please let me know. Uh, It's not that we have to know that they're coming, but the more we know are coming, the better prepared we will be. We have a lot of gifts that we want to give to everybody. We want to make sure that we have enough. So invite as many people as you can. In fact, that number that I just gave you, the uh, 361-271-0875, I have designed a, uh, an invite that you will be able to send to anybody and it's perfectly formatted for smartphones. So if you would like me to send you that invite, go ahead and text me right now and say, please send me the invite and I will make sure that I send it to you. Uh, if you have my uh, personal cell phone number, you can text that one as well. But go ahead and let me know that you want that invite right now. And as soon as we're done with the service, I will send that to you so that you can send it to whoever you wish. So Exodus chapter 19, let's go ahead and begin. And we're going to pick up right where we left off. And I use that trivia time to kind of give us a, a, a refresher, a reminder of what is happening in the first two parts of Exodus. But let's begin in verse number one. And we are going to read through verse six. In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. For they were departed from Rephidim and were come to the desert of Sinai and had pitched in the wilderness, and there Israel camped before the mount. And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, 
and in a holy nation, these are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. So let's talk about chapter 19. Moses and Israel are encamping at the base of Mount Sinai. And remember how God told Moses when he had first called him. He says, this is going to be a sign to you uh, that I am behind all of this. When you bring my people out of Egypt, you are going to come here to the base of this mountain to, quote, serve God upon this mountain. God speaks to Moses. And what God says calls our attention to the purpose he so clearly laid out in part two, or chapters seven through 18. He says, ye have seen all that I have done. I have made my hand and my power and my working clear. Everybody has seen what I did to the Egyptians. You have no reason to serve other gods. You have no reason not to trust me. What God says also calls our attention back to the covenant that he had made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, in verse 5 of Exodus 19, he says, I have given proof that all of the earth is mine. Why would he have to say that? Because the Egyptians, where they have been living for the past 400 years, believe that the earth belonged to all of these different gods. And God says, no, I have proved that all the earth belongs to me, but I want you to be different. Even though I own everything, I want you to be a peculiar treasure unto me. In 19 verse 6, look at what God says, and this is key to understanding the rest of the book. He says, And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. A kingdom of priests. Well, a priest was one who represented God. And remember, the covenant that God had given to Abraham was not only that he would be blessed, but that he and his family would be a blessing. And what God is trying to show them is this blessing to other nations is going to come with you representing me to all of the other nations. You are going to show, the children of Israel are going to show the other nations and bless the other nations by representing who God is. Now, there's only one way that this was going to happen. They had to be a holy nation. They had to be set apart. They had to be sanctified. They had to, what does the word holy mean? Belonging to God. If they were going to be a blessing to the other nations, they had to be different than the other nations. And really the second half of Exodus is all based off of this condition. God had made it more than clear that he was able and willing to keep his part of the covenant. There's no way we can deny that. But now it was time for God's people to do their part in keeping the covenant. And their part was to be holy in a wicked world. Moses tells the people what God has proposed to them in verse 8, and they immediately agree. Now, even though this is the right decision to make, I have to ask myself, do the Israelites fully understand what they're agreeing to? Do they understand what it means to be holy? Do they understand the danger of being unholy in the presence of a holy God? And throughout the rest of the book, God is going to teach them the seriousness of this covenant and the holiness that is needed to be in his presence. In verse 9 of chapter 19, God tells Moses he's going to meet and speak with him 
so that all of the people will be able to see and hear him. But before his presence could even be seen, let alone be entered into, before his presence could even be seen by the people, Moses is given two days. And during those two days, he is to sanctify the people. They're to wash their clothes, it says in verse 10. Husbands and wives were to abstain from each other in verse 15. They were warned to stay away from Mount Sinai completely in verses 12 and 13. A boundary was set that could not be crossed. Don't climb on any part of the mountain, God said. Don't even touch the border of the mountain. If any people touched the mountain, whether it was man or beast, they were to be put to death. And God told them after the two days are over on that third day, my presence is going to descend upon Mount Sinai. And only when they heard the noise of a trumpet would then the boundaries be lifted and they were to then come up into the mount. The people could not have heard these strict instructions without realizing and understanding very quickly the gravity, the seriousness the, uh, of what is transpiring before them. Uh, they weren't used to instructions like this and it must have caught their attention. After the two days have passed in verse 16, God's presence does descend upon Mount Sinai. It comes in thunder and lightning. A thick cloud descends. Fire and smoke, the Bible says in, in verse 18, like a furnace coming up. The whole mountain shook with God's presence. The voice of a trumpet exceeding loud, the Bible says in verse 16 and 19, sounded over and over again so that all the people that was in the camp trembled, the Bible says in verse 16. They heard the trumpet. Now it's time. It is time. This is, this is big what is happening right now. It was time for God's people to come closer to his presence than they had been in centuries. This is a large step that is about to be taken place. God said, for two days, don't come near, don't breach the boundary, don't even think about touching what is coming um, around the mount here. But once you hear that trumpet, it's time for you to come up into my presence and look at how the people react to it in verse 17. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the nether part of the mount. You know what nether means? Let's put it this way, as far away as they could. I remember in Little League when I was first stepping up to that batter's box, I stayed as far back in that batter's box as possible. Just get into the border so he could pitch it, but I'm not coming any closer than I have to. And that was the mindset of these people. Okay, we'll come up into the mount, but they literally crossed that border and maybe just stood on the border and would not come any closer. What does that tell us? They're finally starting to realize being in God's presence is no light matter. Moses is called up to the top of the mount and another warning is given. God tells them in verse 21, charge the people lest they break through unto the Lord to gaze and many of them perish. He says, tell the priests as well, unless they sanctify themselves, if they come into my presence, I will break forth upon them, he says. Why is that? Well, sinful man cannot be in the presence of a holy God. Moses responds in verse 23, and he basically says, Oh, the people know the rules. We've set the boundaries. I don't think anybody is going to come near. And God quickly responds in verse 24. He says, Go tell them again. Go tell them again. 
make it clear, if they come into my holy presence, they are going to die. If they come into my presence the way that they are, they will perish. Moses obeys and tells the people right away in verse 25. That leads us to chapter 20. Now that the people are beginning to understand the seriousness of this covenant, God gives 10 commandments. He gives basically the, the, the ground rules. He lays the foundations of how they are to become this kingdom of priests. How are they supposed to become a holy nation? And God prefaces all of these commandments, not just the 10, but all of them that he is about to give by reiterating himself in verse two. He says, I am the Lord thy God. I, I am it which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So what is God saying? He's saying, because of all that I have done for you, because of all you have seen me do, this is what you need to do now. And he gives the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. In verse 3. Well, that's pretty obvious. God has made that very clear that that is one of his rules. Number two, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image in verse four through six. Not any image in heaven above, not in earth beneath, not in the water under the earth. He said, if those images, if you worship them, we're going to have a problem. He basically says, do not worship or serve anything or anyone other than me. And he says in verse five, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. He continues, Thou shalt not take the name of thy, the Lord thy God in vain, in verse 7. And then in verse 8 through 11, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. These first four commandments dealt with Israel's relationship to God. Now the next six are going to deal with Israel's relationship to man. Honor thy father and mother, in verse 12. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness or lie against thy neighbor, and thou shalt not covet, ending in verse 17. While all of this is happening, the people, according to God's intentions, can see and hear everything that is happening. And in verse 18, we see they are scared to death. And they tell Moses to ask God to stop speaking lest they die in verse 19, showing us that they're beginning even more to understand the true concept of God's holy presence. In verse 20, Moses assures them, says, God is not doing this to kill you. God does not wish them to die. But he's doing all of this to, quote, prove them. God wants them to show that they truly meant what they said in chapter 19, verse 8, when they agreed to this covenant. God speaks again and emphasizes in verse 22 through 26, if you wish to have a relationship with me, these are the terms. This is what it is going to take. Forget all that you have learned in Egypt about, quote unquote, approaching God. You do not approach me by making idols. You do not approach me by serving other gods that represent me. He says the only way that sinners can approach a, a holy God is when a sacrifice is made for your sins. And then he goes on and he says, but even when you build an altar for that sacrifice, God is so holy, even a tool brought down upon the stone that builds the altar that has been held by a sinful hand can pollute that altar. Even wearing the wrong clothing while you approach into God's presence can pollute you and, and make you impure and unable to approach God. 
And that is a note that we must take down in our mind. God is not just concerned, Christian, with right and wrong. There is a big difference between right and wrong. But in God's mind, there is also a big difference between right and almost right. When he says, yeah, build me an altar and sacrifice, and then people just go and think, oh, I'll just use this tool and I'll do it with unclean hands and I'll do it with an impure heart. He says, no, you will not. If you are going to approach me, the littlest detail has to be accounted for. It's here where God elaborates on the Ten Commandments in chapters 21 through 23. And he basically builds off of the point that he began to make at the end of chapter 20. He's, he's going on to say, if, if my commandments are going to be followed, they must be followed down to the smallest detail. Look at what he covers in chapter 21. One, uh, verse 1 through 11, he covers the relationship between master and slave. While all other nations saw no problem with mistreating or even killing a slave, God showed them how they were to be different in this relationship. Verse 12 through 27 follows with laws dealing with injury of man by another man. If the act was premeditated, there were punishments that could not be avoided. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If the act was accidental, there were provisions given for refuge. Verse 28 through 36, God even gives laws dealing with cattle. Chapter 22, he covers laws of property from verses 1 through 15. Laws against immorality, the occult, oppressing strangers, the rich oppressing the poor. Uh, laws against rebelling against authority. Laws about offerings, laws about diet. Chapter 23, laws about justice, equity, and just plain ethical behavior in verses 1 through 9. Laws about farming, laws about the Sabbath, laws about the feasts in verses 14 through 19. All of that leading up to a summary phrase in verse 13 of chapter 23. It says, I'm doing all this for a reason, that in all things that I have said unto you, be circumspect. What is he saying? All of these things that I'm telling you, you need to take heed. You need to pay close attention to them. This is what it's going to take to be a kingdom of priests. This is what it's going to take to be a holy nation. Carelessness is no excuse for unholiness. The Israelites weren't used to this. What were they used to, you may ask? Let me read you a, a parallel passage of when God is speaking to his people through his prophet Ezekiel. And if you want to write down the reference here, this is an incredible passage that sheds light into what is going on in the hearts of God's people. Ezekiel chapter 20, and I'm going to go ahead and read in verse 5. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, In the day when I chose Israel, and lifted up mine hand unto the seed of the house of Jacob, and made myself known unto them in the land of Egypt, when I lifted up mine hand unto them, saying, I am the Lord your God. In the day that I lifted up my hand unto them to bring them forth of the land of Egypt into a land that I had espied for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands, then said I unto them, Cast ye away every man the abominations of his eyes, and defile not yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and would not hearken unto me. They did not every man cast away the abominations of their eyes, neither did they forsake the idols of Egypt. 
even after all that God has done, and he's saying, I'm doing this so you know there is no other God. There is no reason to serve anything else. Throw those idols away. Burn them. Cast them aside. They would not do it. And he makes reference to that right here. And almost like a, a, a warning. Like he sees what is going on. And of course he sees what is going on in their heart. He basically says in, verse, uh, in chapter 23, in verse 13, at the end of it, just in case one of those Israelites were to look at all of these laws and all of these uh, statutes and, and commandments and say something along the lines of, well, we never had to do that when we were worshiping so-and-so, or we never had to do that in order to ask something of that God, God comes to them and says, don't do that. Don't mention their name. You don't serve them anymore. You serve me. That's a powerful statement. Chapter 24, the children of Israel again agree to this covenant in verse 7. The covenant is sealed with the blood of a sacrifice in verse 8. And for the first time since the garden, God's people, being Moses, Aaron, and 70 of the elders of Israel, are able to enter the presence of God in verse 11. In verse 10, it says they saw the God of Israel. But look at, what the, look at the detail that God brings out in verse 11. And upon the nobles of the, of the children of Israel, he laid not his hand. He's trying to show them, I am allowing you through my mercy and through these provisions that I have set in my law for sinful man to come into my presence, and he is not laying his hand on them. Now that the terms of the covenant have been set forth, now that all are in agreement, the time has come for God's presence not just to be up on the mountain, not just for Moses and Aaron and a select few elders to be in God's presence. It, it is time for God's presence to come down and be amongst all of his people. And he says in chapter 25, verse 8, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. That has always been God's desire. From the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, he desires fellowship with you and I. He desires fellowship with humanity. And he says, it is time. Make me a sanctuary so that I can dwell among them. Chapters 25 through 31 deal with the architectural blueprints of this tabernacle. It covers the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence was literally going to rest. It covers the furniture, the altars. Everything that was needed to build this tabernacle and worship there was covered in the greatest detail. When you read these chapters, notice some things. Notice the imagery and symbolism that remind us of the Garden of Eden. Angels, plants, all the different colors. Notice how the elements within the tabernacle were to remind God's people of their responsibility to God and to man when they knew that the Ark of the Covenant was there. Uh, it would remind them that they could only enter into God's presence through the shedding of blood and by His mercy. The table of showbread would remind them that God desired fellowship with them, just like you would sit across the table from somebody and share a meal. The golden candlestick would remind them of the testimony that they were called to bear to the world. Notice how the design of the tabernacle would remind them of the seriousness of approaching a holy God. They knew that that veil was there, seven layers thick, separating all but the high priest from the Holy of Holies. The screen hung at the entrance of the, tab of the Holy of Holies 
very closely matched the veil so that anybody passing by would be reminded that none could enter into God's presence unless atonement was made for their sin. And before God finishes with his instructions, he clarifies once again why he has done all of this in chapter 29, verse 45 and 46. Look there with me. He says, And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God that brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Unfortunately, we know what happens next. In chapter 32, the Israelites grow impatient and break their covenant with God. Chapter 32, verse 4, And he received them at their hands, talking about Aaron, and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. If you are not shaking your head, if you are not saying, no, 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 I have not done a good job of giving an overview of this book of Exodus. If any of, those, if any of the commandments would have been broken, it would have been a gross sin. But the fact that the, the first commandments they break is commandment number one and commandment number two, after all that God has done, is nothing short of abominable. And, the, and that's, those aren't the only covenants that they break. They then go on to uh, have an have a immoral party, if you will. You can't do that without covening your, neighbor, your neighbor's wife. You can't do that without mistreating other people. When God sees their sin, he tells Moses he's going to wipe them all out and start fresh. Now, it's easy for us right now to say, well, God has every right to do that, and he did. He would not have said it if he did not have every right in order to do that. But again, it's easy for us to look at these people and, and be disgusted. But why do we so often turn from God? Why do we so often choose not to trust God after all that he has done for us? Before we point out the sin of these people, we first must confess our own. And we know that that is true. God says in verse 10, I'm going to make a new covenant with you, Moses. I'm going to wipe them all out. I'm going to make of you a great nation instead. Moses brings two arguments forward to this. He says in verse 12, Lord, what would the Egyptians say when they find out that all of your people have died in the wilderness? They'll, they'll mock you. They'll say that you were not able to deliver them. And the second thing he says is, Lord, remember. Remember your covenant with Abraham with Isaac and with Israel. Remember how you promised them. In verse 14, God changes his mind and he chooses to remain faithful to his covenant promise even though his people continue to be unfaithful to him. The instigators of this idolatry are punished and God shows mercy upon the rest. However, the people's sin has brought an even greater punishment in chapter 33. He makes it clear God's presence will no longer be among the people. He says, you, I, you're still going to go up hence. You're still going to go uh, to the land that I swear unto Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob in verse 1, uh, saying, unto thy seed will I give it. And I'll send an angel before thee. Now, that was always the terms. He was going to send an angel uh, to, to uh, drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite. But look in verse 3, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, 
for I will not go up in the midst of thee. For thou art a stiff-necked people, lest I consume thee in the way. When the people hear uh, what they call evil tidings, the Bible says they mourned. In the meantime, Moses pitches the tabernacle, uh, kind of a makeshift tabernacle, afar off from the camp. God's presence can't be in the midst where he wanted it to be. Um, it's not because God couldn't have put it there. It's if God did put his presence there, the people would be consumed. Sinful man cannot be in the presence of God. It's just that simple. So Moses had to put it far off from the camp in verse 7 and continued to intercede for the people, uh, continuing up into verses 12 and 13. And through this intercession, God renews his promise that his presence would go with them on their journey in verse 14. This could not happen without forgiveness, and that forgiveness could not happen without grace. Moses understands this, and he says in verse 16, Wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us? Lord, the fact that after all we have done, you have still said that you are going to allow your presence, you are going to allow us into your presence, there is no greater proof of your grace than that. And God says, you're right, in verse 17, thou hast found grace in my sight. In chapter 34, Moses receives two more tablets for the Ten Commandments, but we can see the people's sin has caused much damage. Even though they are repentant, even though the instigators of it all have been punished, much damage has been done. In chapter 24, Moses, Aaron, and the 70 elders were all able to be in God's presence without any harm. But now in chapter 34, verse 3, God has to tell Moses, no man shall come up with thee. And it is here where God first describes himself to man. Look at what it says in chapter 34, verse 6 and 7. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generations. And Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. In these verses, we see a perfect balance that God is love, but he is also light. God is merciful, but he is also holy. God is gracious, but he is also just. In verse 10, God renews his covenant with Israel and reminds them again of the terms in verses 11 through 27, taking extra time to make very clear the devastation that will come from serving and worshiping other gods and idols if he had not made himself clear as of yet. After 40 days in the presence of God, it's incredible. Moses' face shines with God's glory in verses 28 through 35. And that's a note that we can write down. You can always tell when God's people have been with the Lord. You can always tell when a Christian has spent time with God. Chapters 35, 35 through 40 are almost a word-for-word -word retelling 
of chapters 25 through 31. And it shows how Israel followed God's instructions for building the tabernacle and all of its elements down to the finest detail. And this is all for a purpose. God is trying to teach his people that having a relationship with him required full obedience. 99.9% obedience was not good enough. They had to be fully obedient to him. All of this uh, project was funded by the willing offerings of God's people. And throughout these six chapters, it's a relief to finally see God's people all on the same page. They're not complaining. They're working together. They even give so much to the treasury, to the treasury that they are told to stop giving. And in chapter 40, the last chapter, the tabernacle is completed. Not only is it completed, but it has all been completed, the Bible says, as the Lord commanded Moses. No more than eight times does the Bible make that phrase, as the Lord commanded Moses. And in verse 34, God's presence comes down and fills the tabernacle. It must have been a beautiful sight, a sight of relief, a sight of joy, a sight that would have made all of the people smile. Exodus begins, uh, Pastor Raspberry, if you know Pastor Raspberry, he's up in Wiley, Texas, and he came down for our winter revival. He's a great friend to me, and I have to give him much credit for this study that I have done in, uh, in Exodus. He's written a commentary on it, and it was a great help to me. If you would like that commentary, um, I will get his permission to see if I could share that with you. But he said this, Exodus begins with God's people in the midst of Egypt and ends with God in the midst of his people. But then something puzzling happens. Well, at least it's puzzling when we first see it, but when we think about it, it's really not puzzling at all. In verse 35, when Moses tries to enter the tabernacle, he can't. Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation. Now we have to stop here and understand why this has happened. This wasn't because of the sin of Moses. This was because of the sin of the people. And even after all of their outward giving, all of their outward actions, something had to be done to deal with their inward sin before Moses could enter on their behalf. God has made it clear that he will keep his covenant promise, but he is too holy to allow sinful people to be in his presence. The key question now becomes, how is God going to reconcile his people? How is he going to deal with their sin? Now, we are asking this question. Obviously, God has known from the beginning of time, from before the beginning of time, how is he going to do that? But that's our key question right now. How, how is God going to make all of this work? In verse 36 through 38, it mentions how the Israelites moved when the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle. Uh, whenever they saw it uh, taken up, they would move. They would follow it, the, the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. But that cloud isn't going to be taken up for a while. That cloud isn't going to be taken up until Numbers chapter 10, actually. In between Exodus and Numbers is the book of Leviticus. And the book of Leviticus is the answer to that key question that we have just asked. The book of Exodus, I don't know the main thought that you have gotten out of it, and I hope that this study has helped you, 
but from what I see, the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus together has shown me God's faithfulness and man's unfaithfulness, shown me God's holiness and man's sinfulness. It's shown me all of God's victories and all of man's failings. But all of it points to the undeniable truth that God loves his people, that God wants to be with his people, that he wants to fellowship with his people. But it also points to the undeniable truth of man's desperate need for a savior from sin. The next time anybody doubts the power of Jesus Christ, I want you to remember all of what has happened in Genesis, all of the spiraling down away from God, all of the uh, laws and commandments and the, uh, the practices, the traditions, the feasts, the sacrifices that are going to be talked about in Leviticus in order to get man back just to being in God's presence again once a year, once a year to make atonement for the people. All of that was done away with by Jesus Christ. In one instant, the, as soon as he died, he said, it is finished. And that veil that had kept people, kept sinful man from coming to God's holy presence for thousands of years was rent in two. And now the fact that the Bible says you and I can come boldly to the throne of grace, to find mercy, to, to obtain, uh, to find grace, to help in time of need. We can do that boldly because of Jesus Christ should blow your mind and warm your heart. You need to praise Jesus tonight for all that he has done for you. And I, I need to praise him for all that he has done for me. The fact that I could fall on my knees right now as a sinner and be in God's presence in prayer is something that we must never take for granted. We must never rush into God's presence. I'll leave you with this story. There's a man, his name was Richard Wormbrand. Richard Wormbrand was uh, a man who ended up being taken captive and tortured because of his faith in Christ in, um, in Cy Siberia, I, I believe. I'm sorry, I, I can't remember the exact place right now. I don't know why I'm blanking. But there's a story that I heard of Richard Wormbrand after he was set free and he actually came to the States and he was speaking and preaching and sharing his testimony. And he went out to, he went out to eat with another preacher. And as they sat down for their meal, uh, the one preacher looked to uh, Brother Wormbrand and said, uh, would you pray for us and would you pray for the meal? And they both bowed their heads. About 15 seconds went by of silence. Nothing happened. And the preacher just sat there and he kind of glanced up at Brother Wormbrand and he was just looking down, not praying, not saying anything. 30 seconds, 45 seconds, a minute, what, what seemed like an eternity went by in silence. And the preacher started to believe, well, maybe he didn't hear me. Maybe he misunderstood that I asked him to pray. Maybe he's waiting on me to pray. So the preacher just began to pray, Lord, thank you so much for this food. We thank you for the day and, uh, you know, bless us throughout the rest of the day. And we give you the praise and honor for it. Amen. And he looked up and Brother Wormbrand was staring into his eyes. And he said, that is the problem with Christians. You rush into God's presence too quickly. That is a powerful testimony that I will never forget. When we bow our heads to pray, we must understand what we are doing, 
who we are speaking to, to whom we are addressing. The God of the universe is on the other end of the line. Thank you for listening to our audio preaching podcast. For more information about our ministries, or if you would like to get in contact with us, please visit our website at heritagebaptistcctx.org. May God bless you as you go forward with the gospel this week.